Hello and welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. I'm your host, Scott Haskin. And before I start this week's episode, uh, last week I had started the episode by saying we were going to finish up our review of Ride the Lightning by Metallica. But Brandon and I, we really dug into things and talked about a lot of stuff. So I didn't want to cut out any of the conversation because it was fantastic. And I ended up having to break it into more episodes than I thought. And I didn't um, I didn't stop in the middle of that to do any like new show intro or anything. So uh, I, I'm doing that now and just broke them up into smaller chunks after the fact. But I had a great time talking to Brandon. As you can obviously tell, this episode, we dig into the majority of the album. We saved the last couple songs for episode four, which will air next week, our final in the four part series. But Brandon is such a great guy. Uh, check out Metallicast. I've got the links in the show notes. You can also find it on, you know, whatever your favorite podcast player is. Um, he's a great guy, obviously very passionate and knowledgeable about Metallica, knows far more stuff than I did. I really learned a lot from him in these episodes, and I'm so grateful that he was able to take some time out, come on to, sh uh, to the show and dig into this album because it's a great album. It really has a lot of value to me as a musician. I heard it at a time that was uh, a really developmental period. For me, especially as a drummer and the stuff that, that Lars was doing was very new. I'd never heard anything quite like the way he was playing. His style is very unique to him. Uh, and, and it was just, you know, the songs are fantastic still. You know, we're in the middle of summer now and I had to go run to the store the other day. And uh, Fight Fire with Fire was the first thing on my iPod. So when I got in the car, I plugged in my little uh, transmitter thing, turned on the, the stereo and here I am going to a, a retail outlet, listening to Fight Fire with Fire while it's blistering hot outside, uh, just brought me right back to when I was growing up in that first summer when I was really first into this album. Uh, but check out Metallicast, guys. Brandon's a, a great guy. He does a lot of episodes. And, you know, it, I have to say, as someone who does a podcast by themselves, it can be really hard because all of the work is on you. You don't have a partner to do research or help with links or hashtags or editing or anything like that. Like everything that you do is 100% on you. And he's been able to maintain a show for a long time, done a lot of great episodes. And if you're even curious about Metallica, what a great show to listen to. I've checked out a couple of other Metallica podcasts. I always say that Brandon's is my favorite uh, because it is. But to be fair, I actually have checked out a couple of other ones. And, you know, there's some that are, are OK, but there's just something about the passion that I get from Brandon and his delivery, coupled with his knowledge that makes his show the one that I have enjoyed the most and that I will continue to listen to as long as he's doing it. And when he stops doing it, I'll probably go back and listen to some of the older episodes um, you know, cause that's always fun to do every once in a while, but thank you very much, Brandon, for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Let's get into this week's episode. Well, let's check out a little bit of for whom the bell tolls.
think I ever noticed this before, but in in the depths of my right ear, am I hearing Kirk harmonize what Cliff is playing? I'd have to hear it again. It sounds like there's another track in there. It's really quiet. Like really up in the high register of the guitar. Yeah. I, I'm curious if it's uh guitar or if it's like a doubled bass part low in the mix. That could maybe. be too. Yeah. That's a neat sound. I like I like the blend of that. Yeah. I love yeah, yeah. I love the kick and how that works with the rhythm guitars on this. I think it just packs such a punch. Uh and that just that deep snare. He's got such a great snare sound sound on this album. Um, but to hear what Cliff can do, to hear him come out front and lead the opening to this song, it's it's such a treat. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, Cliff Burden is who he is in history in the history of time because of moments like this song. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, unrelated, whenever I hear that bell intro, I always think to myself i always like to play this game right if you're if you're listening to the radio and you hear that bell you have to guess after the first one is it hell's bells or is it for whom the bell tolls Ooh. good yeah that's a good yeah. point I, I don't think they I, I don't think you could find a darker bell to open a song with than that one i i don't i've never heard a bell that has a darker tone than that i don't know where I they know. found it but that was that was a genius you know, and I love too how at the end of the song, the bell comes back to to align with the with the with the rhythm of it all. It, it's just really, it, it's such a beautifully constructed song, you know. And it's uh, when you look back at, um, you know, the first two records, I think you have, you know, the the four horsemen and seeking destroy are probably the two most iconic songs from that first album and seeking destroy has become a live staple, but this is really like the second live staple ever put on record. You know, mm-hmm. you're hard pressed. Like I said, to have a show where you do not have seek and destroy and from the bell tolls. It's just, it, it's, it, but unlike seek and destroy, I hear the song way more on the radio to this day you know it's which is funny because these songs were not played on the radio in 1984 (laughs) that's right yeah but you know now they've become such iconic fan favorites that they've sort of become you know hit songs (laughs) exactly and you know i i think too this is not a a difficult song i don't think from from a technical musical standpoint it's a very simple song what we really get is we get a nice bed of music that allows James Hetfield to tell the story, really let yeah. him shine a little bit. And also Lars, because it goes James, then Lars is going to do a fill, then James, then Lars is going to do a fill. And they have this little trade-off back and forth that's that's really unique. I don't, I can't think of any other song that has quite that structure. I will say this, though. I'm so used to hearing this song live now that there are live moments that they do that i expect them to do on the record now <laughs> right yeah you know it's like you know when they say um uh in the second verse 
you know, I expect like complete silence in that one part of the song, you know? Right. Yeah. And then maybe a motherfucker here or there, you know, <laughs> but you don't get I, that on the album. Cause I, cause I flash back to Jason Newsom's backing vocals, you know, uh, when he would just throw in the, you know, MF or every once in a while. But, uh, but yeah, I I re-listened to the the song today, which I mean I've heard it a million one times. But every time I listen to it, I was thinking of that again this morning when I was listening back to it. I'm like, I always expect like the live version now because I've just heard it so many times. Well, it, it's live. like if you ever had an album on eight track or or had like a record that skipped in a certain spot every time. Whenever yeah. you go to hear a clean <laughs> version of it, you're still waiting for that skip or that eight track to switch right. tracks so that you can yeah, yeah, wait yeah. for eight seconds to hear the rest of your song, you know? Exactly. Uh, I want to play just a little bit of the chaos at the end of the song, because this is where the song mm. is most magical for me as a drummer, even though this is the simplest thing to play. I loved playing this part because it's just it's supporting just complete insanity. So we have the return of the bell. We've got just guitars going nuts, but we've still got that really heavy tom kick snare foundation. Bass is really heavy. Rhythm guitar is really heavy. But if you notice, the bell is not on the number. It's just slightly off of the beat, which just makes it just a little uncomfortable because every time you expect that bell is going to be there and it comes right after, and it just makes it uncomfortable. While the squealing guitar is like muffled in the mix a little bit it's loud enough where you can hear it but it's not right up front where you're it's it's almost like the muffles cries from the battlefield right right whereas you would expect it would be similar it would be treated similar to a guitar solo at the end where that would be up front and everything else would just be supporting but it's almost like it's just saying, hey, I'm going to be over here doing my thing. You guys just keep it going and we'll put the bell in there, too, and just make it crazy. And I would and I would guess my assumption is that the the guitar squeals there is entirely improvised um, would be my assumption. I don't know how you sit down and compose that <laughs> section. <laughs> well, there's probably I, I would imagine like in rehearsals you probably come up with something that that like, oh, I like that. You know, maybe that I'll works, hang on to yeah. that. And just like sure. at some point when you're doing the actual take, you you remember that and you throw it in somewhere. But yeah, it, it, that feel, is true. It, it just feels very natural. It doesn't feel like yeah. I'm going to go from this to this to this. It just it just feels like in, in the moment style playing. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think, too, it we would be not doing our jobs if we did not talk about how I know I've mentioned how I've heard it live a million times, but how great of a live song it is. It's like almost made for that live arena setting, you know, like when you say for whom the bell tolls and every single person's answering time marches on, Mm -hmm. it's like tailor made for it. It's super simple to like, you hear the, you hear it once, you know it, you know? And, and, and I think too, uh, that is, uh, that's not an insult to the song. That's almost like a sign of a great song. You, sure. you know it, you know it instantly. 
Right. And and this is a song that when you play it live, you're going to get massive crowd participation, whether you want it or not. <laughs> right. Right. They just and can't it, help themselves. Even, even that end. Dun, 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 dun. Like, you know, you're going to have the devil horns and the fist pounding, you know, in rhythm. And it, it, it's it's just a superb. There's a reason why it's become a live staple. Besides it being a great song. It's a great live song. And the nice thing is because they don't have the bell in the live version, the crowd fills it in for you. They just go, yeah, ah. I, I'm going to bring my own bell next time. There See, you go. Yeah, yeah. See if you can rent like the Liberty Bell or something. Just just wheel it down to the venue for the day. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure no one will mind. That'll be the that'll be the one night they leave it off the set. <laughs> yeah, that's they did right. creeping death instead. Come on, uh, that that was another staple in their set for a while, wasn't it? Creeping death. Yeah, they they opened a lot of shows with that, which I loved when they opened with it. Yeah, that's a, well, we'll get to that, but that's a, that's a great yeah. song too. Uh, the next song in the album is probably from from a commercial standpoint, probably the most known off of this album for a lot of people, probably the one Metallica song that they know if they're not big fans of Metallica, because they probably heard it in one place or another. I used to hear this one on the radio. This is like the one that they would play. Uh, and this is called Fade to Black. First thing that that I realize when I'm listening to this is that it's very strange that the rhythm is up front and the solo is in the background. Yeah, yeah, and also the love the juxtaposition of like the clean and the distortion, you know, mm-hmm. and you know it when it begins, it reminds you a bit of to fight uh, fight fire with fire in the sense that it's that clean tone it's super clear but then you have this you know distorted lead that takes over but not takes over but comes in i I remember the first time i heard it thinking okay here's here's like this nice little intro and just waiting for the song to explode which of course it does but not until much later this is really i mean as close to a ballad i guess as you can get in the metal world but i think this this song really showcases the talent of the band in the way of we don't have to drive a thousand miles an hour. We're actually going to sing something with real emotion in it. And it's a sad song when you really break down the lyrics, but we're also going to have those components in there later, but we can, we can write a song that's not just, you know, we can do it. And I think this is a great performance from James Hatfield. I know a lot of people hate the song because they've heard it too much. But for me, every time I hear it, I'm like, I really feel some pain coming from him in this song. I never get tired of the song. And, you know, to a few points, I think to go back to, you know, you saying the leads like a little bit down the mix. I to me, that almost adds when it goes into. And it builds to that main uh part there that he's going to be singing over it, it almost 
kind of helps bleed those two sections because you come from the background, you have that build, and then it kind of takes more center stage, I think. And it is a sad song. And this, this song got a lot of flack for two reasons. It was a ballad, quote, ballad. The first half of the song is a ballad. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, Sell out. And that was, yeah, that was a big no-no. You you play thrash metal. You only play thrash metal. You do not dabble in, you know, balladry. And uh, this was the first time the band heard the term sellout. And then, you know, when this album came out, they were, it was on Megaforce Records, but it was soon... They soon signed to a major label. It was re-released on Electro Records. So this was the first album on a major label. So now you have, you know, we we talked about a part one, not wanting to see your band become popular. Well, now they're on a major label. They're they they're, they wrote a ballad, sellouts, right? And, and I can't imagine a major label taking something that they can't get some radio playability out of. Sure, yeah, and um, you know, and this. This song and one other track that we'll get to later on, I think, was were probably their their best hopes of doing so. Um, but you know, it, it's ironic though because even if this song was, uh, if you got rid of the last like four minutes of the song, it'd be a good radio song, <laughs> <laughs> right? But it, but it's like almost too long, and it goes into the heavy solo section and the heavy bridge and uh but yeah this is definitely a sad song because another reason why i got flack was you know it's the suicide song you know i feel like every every 80s metal band was targeted for suicide you know ozzy osbourne with suicide solution was a big example of that and you know all the later in the 80s you know the yeah uh well the judas priest lawsuit over, over the kid you know yeah 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 so it, it was like a big thing in the 80s. So I, I think it got flack for that. But I mean, uh, as a Metallica fan, I know Hatfield wrote the lyrics. Their gear had gone stolen uh, in Boston, Massachusetts. He was feeling really down and out, feeling sad himself. These are the lyrics that resulted in his like feelings from that moment. Um, and But when you look at the lyrics, too, I think it gives like it's dark, it's grim but there's a glimmer of hope, you know? And I think it's feelings that a lot of people can relate to in one way or another. And I think that's part of why Metallica has broken through as such a big band, because they write lyrics that relate to a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. Yeah. And, and I, I hate the fact that they got flack for it because really to me, this should have been commended we're talking about difficult subject matter. And I think about like 80s sitcoms and they were allowed to to go into a dark episode now and then. I mean, different- A stories. very special episode. <laughs> right, where Nancy Reagan would come out and warn you what was going to happen, <laughs> you know? Uh, right. <laughs> I, I remember like on different strokes, they had one where one like uh, Arnold's friend Dudley got molested by Arthur Carlson from WKRP. <laughs> you were allowed to talk about yeah. that stuff as long as you warn people, but you do that as a metal band. You talk about anything emotional. I mean, it's it's all supposed to be skulls and daggers. And I think that yeah. that Metallica really broke that mold because they weren't afraid to just talk about whatever they wanted to talk about. And to this day, uh, you know, with with some of the documentaries and stuff that they've done where they they talk about going to group therapy and individual therapy to try and better themselves, and they actually show some of their therapy sessions. 
they just did this thing where where they hugged on stage. I yeah. love that because I hate I hate that you know, well, I'm in a metal band. I got to be tough. I got to wear leather and I got to have a mean look on my face all the time. And I, I don't, I don't see that as being the music. I see that as being the commercial side of, of, of a band trying to sell an image instead of just being who you are. I love that Metallica are human beings that write some hardcore songs. Yeah, absolutely agree. And, you know, acknowledge things like mental health, the importance of mental health and you know i i think it takes way more balls to go on stage as the vocalist of the biggest metal band who ever lived in front of thousands of people and have a vulnerable emotional moment where you're open about your struggles and the band embraces you and you tear up mm-hmm. that takes way more balls than saying Let's get this fucking pick going. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and, and not only that, but you know that it's going to be uploaded to YouTube at least 300 times before you even get off the stage. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, neither of us were at that show and we know about because it made headlines. It went viral, you know, mm. and it's and they and they were rightfully commended for it. And, you know, like you were saying, there's been other examples of that, whether it's them going through their own therapy. They got a lot of flack for some kind of monster and you know, showcasing their group therapy and, you know, but at the end of the day, it works for them. They're still a band. And I think that takes a lot of balls to show you warts and all, you know, and, uh, and and that's for a 100% not something a lot of people would do, especially in metal. And, um, but again, I think that's a reason why they have been able to break away from the pack in a lot of ways, you know, and, you know, when you look at other bands um, cover things like Suicide, like I mentioned Suicide Solution by Ozzy Osbourne. And that's really, if, if my understanding of that track is correct, that's like him telling the story of Bon Scott, like drinking himself to death. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Fade to Black is not the story of a specific person. It's It's not a specific situation. It's not even about necessarily suicide itself it's about like the feeling and the mental health that leads that can lead to that decision right and i think it's more relatable too because it's not about a specific person or situation it doesn't say you know my girlfriend dumped me and i want to die it's not that specific it's very vague in, in general but you what you really get out of it is more just the understanding of of loss and hopelessness and just there's no yeah. point in getting up tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, and let's be honest, most human beings have felt some form of depression or at least sadness. And everybody has that morning they wake up and they're like, do I really have to get up and like go to work today or go to school today or do this thing? I'm just go to the grocery store. Like, I just want to lie here. Yeah. And do nothing because I'm lazy. I feel like crap. I whatever. You're burnt out from life. Like that's something everybody can relate to. Mm-hmm. And not to mention the thousands and thousands of millions and millions of people who suffer from depression, things like that. Just because you're depressed, just because you're sad, does not mean you're going to, you know, kill yourself. And when I'm listening to a song like this, 
it, it's I personally have not been suicidal, but it taps into something that I have felt. Right. Yeah. You well, know? you can identify with that intense level of, you know, emotion. But honestly, I mean, to me, it doesn't make me want to commit suicide any more than walking on sunshine wants to make me get on a rocket and go fly out to the sun. <laughs> you right. know? Yeah. But but I could appreciate the story he's telling. I can it's gonna yes. draw up some kind of memory for me whenever I hear it of some time that I yeah. felt sad or you know, or something. But I think, you know, for me, for them to expose themselves the way they had, I think it makes me appreciate their journey even more. And their, you know, the fact that they've stayed together all these years through all the times that any other band would not have. You know, I, I just yeah. think it, it makes me appreciate a, the next album that comes out because there's they stuck together and made it work even more than the last one. I mean, what do you think that it's been James and Lars since 1981 mm -hmm. james lars and kirk for every album since 1983 and you know they've had they've had only three bass players when you look at other bands it's an astonishing figure and one of those bass players passed away mm -hmm. you know and so it's and you know when you pass away then you had a bassist that outlived him in the band was there for years longer decided to do something different and now rob trujillo has been in the band the longest amount of time which is funny to think of because you know but he's been their longest tenured bass player and he does not appear to be going anywhere so i mean that when you look at that that's you know astonishing even you know aerosmith who has a lot of their core original members intact had that whole thing in the 80s where you know they had joe perry was not in the band and they were right. you know they you know like there's albums without original members and and let's be honest I, I don't know how much of how much the original band plays on some of those later records so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think there's a lot of filling in uh, the gaps there yeah, but I, yeah yeah and the stones i think are one of the only bands that really has has just maintained their basically their original lineup until charlie watts yeah. just passed away uh, yeah. But yeah, it's such a rare thing. Metallica is one of the only bands that has had any longevity in their success and been able to do that. Uh, yeah. I want to play one more part of this uh, because I, I think this has a little bit of an influence I want to get your opinion on. Uh, where is it at? Ah. That guitar riff, me, and I know that, that the band is, have been throughout their lives big fans of Deep Purple. Uh, it seems like there's a little bit of a Richie Blackmore influence in that riff to me. Do you, do you hear that at all? I can hear that. Yeah, it definitely... It's almost it, it like sounds, with the trill style. Yeah. It sounds like, like um, for, to put it really vaguely and generically... It sounds like a classic rock part, right? Like mm -hmm. something you would expect from like uh, a Deep Purple or in later years, like even like a Boston or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Like it has sort of like that, um, just that overall feel. Uh, but, you know, Lars Ulrich, gigantic Deep Purple fan. Um, and, you know, the rest of the band members were definitely influenced by them as well. So, I mean, I, I, I definitely think that's possible. 
without Lars, a doubt. Lars definitely gave an amazing induction speech for Deep Purple. was a was a huge proponent in getting them inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame a couple years ago. Uh, I I couldn't I couldn't imagine being a member of Deep Purple standing there listening to him say all the amazing things that he said about them. And not just going, oh my God, we're not that great. Just stop, <laughs> you know. I mean, but but everything he said was was very valid. I thought, but it was just so yeah. eloquent, and and you could really he felt everything that he wrote in that speech. Yeah, that was, yeah. that was a beautiful moment. Yeah, and it also just goes back to the fact I think why you know part of this band is so attractive to so many people like myself is because they're fans still. You know, they're just they generally have a passion for music and for, you know, bands that they like listening to. And, and I mean, if you're any, any fan of music can relate to that. Absolutely. And Lars, if you're listening, I know you're a fan of Uriah Heep (laughs) and you had mentioned that they deserve to be in the rock and roll hall of fame. So I'm just throwing it out there. Your, your words have influence, my friend. (laughs) Yes. It's, and and Scott and I both want to interview you. So that's right. Oh man, that would be that would be amazing. Why do you hit the cymbal with every snare drum? It's amazing. <laughs> I, I actually I really love his style. I mean, he he's a very unique drummer. He you could tell he's yeah. influenced, but he really came up with a style that was really all his own. Yeah, you know, people again love to give him flack, but he that band does not exist without him. I mean, from a business standpoint, no way. From a, a creative standpoint, I mean, there's a reason why he has co-songwriting credits on most every track. Um, and as a drummer, is he the fanciest drummer? No, and he never pretends to be. He he serves the song, and he has a very unique sound. The moment you hear that snare drum, you know it's him. How many drummers can you say that about? You hear a hit of a snare drum and you know it's them. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, he's influenced countless people because of his style, which is um, at times maybe a bit unorthodox because he kind of, he doesn't always play like a drummer. He sometimes follows like, you know, the rhythm guitar and does other things like he he's kind of a melodic drum player mm-hmm. sometimes which right sounds yeah. weird to say but if you listen to a song like injustice for all right that mm-hmm. whole that whole main riff is based around some quirky drum part he's doing well and, and um, that's why i was disappointed when he got rid of his his extra toms because i thought i i'm gonna miss that melodic side of him but he seems to cover for it very well yeah and and he's definitely a different um uh he he's all about feel, you know. I think people will say, "Well, he he doesn't play double bass in that part live." And I'm like, he plays plenty of double bass. Get the guy a break, you know. <laughs> yeah. and, and 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 ultimately, he doesn't care because he's he he he's he's a feel guy. He's going for the feel. And as he will say, uh, you know, I I think it might have been on Howard Stern. Howard Stern was saying how he's like, you know, uh one of the greatest drummers of all time. And I think he, his, he said, I think I'm the greatest drummer to ever play for Metallica. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, I, I don't think anyone can argue that. Yeah. Uh, no, you're absolutely right. And I think the thing with him though, is that he, what the live clips I've seen of him over the last few years, what I love about him is that he doesn't stick to the song. 
he kind of plays what yeah. he feels in the moment as opposed to saying, this is how this part was played in the song, so this is what I have to play here. He kind of just plays what he feels. And and we're going to get into that when we get into one of the, the later songs on this album. Uh, but I, I love that about him because I don't want to go see a band play the song that they played in the studio. I want to see something different. And also, he's like as frontman as you can be behind mm-hmm. a drum kit yeah. when you're not singing the song. I mean, there's very few drummers that can that have the stage presence he has. I mean, I, I I'm, I'm trying to think of the top of my head, Tommy Lee maybe, but Tommy Lee even has to do like you know the twirling drum set in, right. the, in yeah. the sky, like you know it's a little bit more gimmicky there. Um, but you know, Lars Ulrich just has this natural presence. I mean, he's standing up from the drum set right and walking away and spitting water on people, and then mm-hmm. going back like he's he just has such control of the stage and as somebody who is quote just a drummer um it's pretty it's pretty amazing i think well even when i've seen some of their rehearsals and writing sessions you know he's got great input on the music he is the the last thing i would ever you know because most drummers like you walk in with a song and you're like hey guys i wrote a, a piece of music if you want to check it out and they're like hey that's great what songs are we practicing tonight you know just completely blow the guy yeah. off but lars is very involved in all aspects obviously the business side of things he's a, a huge spokesperson for the band which a lot of drummers are not um he's definitely got his footprint in the band for sure well and going back to you know kirk hammond as a guitarist um on most albums if not all of them uh Lars basically helps produce and coach those guitar solos. You know, if you see if you watch a year and a half in Life of Metallica, which is about the making of the black album, when Kirk's coming up with guitar solos, there's usually two other people in the room, Bob Rock, the producer, and Lars Ulrich, mm-hmm. um, giving their two cents. And you know, Lars is a fan of music, so he might not be classically trained, but he knows what he wants to hear. And you know, I going back to the Black Album, I, you know, the story behind the Inter Salmon riff, Kirk Hammett wrote that riff. He wrote it as da 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 the same thing over and over again. And Laura said, do that part three times and play the tale after three times. Now you have, you know, you have it as you know it that's a completely it's a small thing but that's a completely different song without that happening you know yeah. he's a great producer and yes. arranger i would say yes yes absolutely yeah well our next song on here is uh this is going it's almost like when you start a new side on a metallica album you've really got to let people know that you're listening <laughs> to more music that's really going to be hard hitting and this one yeah. is called trapped under ice <laughs> They're great build up to to more insanity. Yeah. I have to say, we we haven't heard James's voice, but I have to say, I think he does sound a little bit younger on this song. Like it was almost like they recorded this somewhere between Kill 'Em All and the rest of Ride the Lightning because he sounds yeah. younger to me on this one. 
I can agree with that. I, for me, for anybody listening, I love this song, but <laughs> here we go. I think this is the weakest link on the album. And that, and that's just because it's such a great album. You mm-hmm. know, if I, if I force to choose a weak link, this is the song. I think it's a great thrash metal song. I think though, it's the closest to what you would hear on kill them all, but in terms of performance, in terms of, um, songwriting in terms of you know lyrically even i think it, it, the the lyrics are like a little bit more cliche mm-hmm. compared to some of the other stuff great song like it makes you want to headbang and throw some stuff and maybe punch somebody in the face <laughs> but right but but compared to i mean you're we just had fight fire with fire ride the lightning from the bell tools fade to black like Trapped Under Ice just does not live up to those four tracks. I, I think that's interesting. What I do like about it is that, okay, so we've had Fade to Black. Yes, we ended it on a, a more heavier note, but we've let people like soak into their emotions and now they're deep in their own thoughts. We got to get them back. Like we got to have something that's just going to be like the cup of coffee at the beginning of the day. Just slap them awake and go, okay, back to the album, guys. Like we got to hit it hard. So I like that. I agree with what you're saying. What I wish the song had was I wish it was a little bit more metaphorical. I feel like it's just very literal in in the story. Like he's literally frozen under a block of ice and he's pounding the ice to get out. I wish there was a bigger story behind that. Like he's emotionally trapped under ice or, or, you know, just something bigger than the literal feel that it has. I think that is my main problem with it. Because you see like the lyrics take such a huge jump forward. You know, we just got done talking about Fate to Black, like the the weight of those words, right? Mm-hmm. And now we have Trapped Under Ice taken quite literally. It just seems a little bit more cliche and cartoonish in a way. Um, and it's not a knock against the song. I like the song, but, you know, it, it, I agree with you. I think it was kind of a missed opportunity. Like you could have had a, the same song title, similar lyrics, but go a little bit deeper in and i think you know if this was james hatfield's after this album that's what you get but i think this show this is sort of like the last remnant of their youthful innocence <laughs> yeah I, I was i was thinking too like this might have been something that was in development during kill them all and it just wasn't finished and they, you know, they were like hey what was that one song we were working on and they developed it for this album which might kind of go back to why the lyrics seem to take a step back from the rest of the album and feels more like something that would have belonged on Kill 'Em All. I think musically it's a little more more up to ride the lightning standards, but lyrically yeah. I think that's where it's losing me. Yeah, I I agree with you there. Um and that's why I would say if I have to choose a weak link of this album, this would be uh this would be it for me. I would say though the opening line is really powerful. I don't know how to live through this hell. Because you can take it anywhere from there. I think that's a great yeah. attention-grabbing first line. Unfortunately, that's the best line in the song. <laughs> and it, <laughs> well, it just unfortunately, goes from there. Unfortunately, where he brings it is being literally dropped under ice. Right, so. right. yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll, we'll move on to, uh, to Escape. Now, I have to say, for me, I think Escape is the weakest song on the album. Um, that's just me. Well, if... And I think a lot of 
Metallica fans would agree with you, actually. If you ask James Hetfield, he would 100, 100% agree with you. He does not like Escape. He, um, it, it took years. I'm talking decades before they performed this song live. And um, because they quite simply did not like it. They, they kind of have admitted like this is the one time in their career where the record label had a little bit of pressure on them of like, Hey, we need like a song that's like for radio. Uh And this was their attempt. Mm -hmm. Um, Hence their kind of distaste for it. Um, But I, I would argue though that it's just too damn catchy to for it to, for it to be the weakest link on the album for me um but yeah i think a lot of people would agree with you and i and, and i know for a fact based on interviews um that james Hatfields would definitely agree with you there you know i like the verse um i think the chorus is a little weak for me but what what really does it kills it from the beginning is the first 30 seconds of the song it just it's almost like you you could see them on stage just like swinging their guitars in unison and you guys can't see me but i'm swinging an invisible (laughs) guitar uh you know like it it just feels like that kind of song like like we're doing something to be catchy and uh just a a metal song starting out with just two empty snare hits uh it just like right off the bat it just feels kind of weak to me but let, let let me play for you guys what i'm talking about for the eight people that aren't familiar with this song else it's it's all mid-rangey there's no real bottom end in that yeah yeah it's it's definitely i think musically the most basic mm-hmm. right because it, it there we can p- compare that to fight fire with fire right it's a lot of just like open riffing and pull-offs and uh but i don't know it it it, it it's kind of seems in a way and i'm not saying this as a knock against this song or anything that came later it's almost like um a preview of what they'd be doing in the 90s mm. <laughs> in some ways yeah where it's like where it's more scaled back it, it's it's less focused on uh it, on like a crazy song structure with you know, all these twisted turns and different time signatures. And like, it's not progressive. It's not all that technical. The focus is, or at least the attempt is for the focus to be on the melody and kind of this like more traditional verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, end it. Um, Which is not a bad thing. I, I, I agree with you that Trapped Under Ice is... uh musically more interesting um i think escape just sticks in my head more yeah it it is definitely very catchy um just like with that at the end of every line in the the verse i like the verse i like the transition part 
Um, but just overall, it just feels like a very light song. You just can't hear this song and not have that chorus stuck in your head. Life's for my own, to live my own way. <laughs> that's, that's true. And, and at the end, I really like what they do with the siren. That's actually a, a really cool thing that they added in the background. Um, yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not a, to, to say that it's the weakest song on Ride the Lightning is still, it's still a good song. You yeah. know, I, but well, just, that's what I—that's what I was saying about uh, Leper Messiah on Metallica. So I go, it's mm-hmm. my least favorite song on my favorite album of all time. Right. So I mean, I think it's the weakest song in that album. Does not mean I think it's a weak or bad song. Yeah, it, it's like saying that's the worst bite of cake yeah. <laughs> in this delicious cake. You know, it's still a pretty awesome song. But yeah. if you if you're looking at things comparatively there's things that you're going to like more and there are things you're going to like less. So for me, escape yeah. would be, I, I, what I will say though, is as a drummer, I enjoyed playing it. I was in a band that this was a, one of our staples and I really enjoyed playing the song. I, I had six rack toms, so I played it a little bit more melodically, but uh, I enjoyed it as a drummer, but as a listener, when I listen to this album, this is actually one I might skip from time to time. Yeah. I mean, it would probably be my, if I'm skipping songs, it's probably these two in a row right here. Mm-hmm. 